Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to Sam Knight, who is a magazine writer and the author of the recent piece for The Guardian about how the sandwich is taking over the world and also wrote a piece about what will happen in the event of the Queen's demise. So at present, Sam divides his time largely between Guardian Longreads and The New Yorker in the US. But I also spoke to him about a uh, fantastic piece he did for Harper's a few years ago. I found this a really interesting discussion to do. I'm a big admirer of Sam's work, and we discussed everything from his entry into journalism to uh, some of the processes and methods he uses and his future plans. We really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. I'm here in East London with Sam Knight. Um, Sam, what's the best way to describe you for the, all the kind of work that you do? Would magazine writer be a fair qualification? Yeah, I think that's good. Okay, excellent. Well, can you tell me, first of all, a bit about your, uh, your background and your entry into journalism and how you uh, then moved towards doing the kind of big pieces that you do now? Sure. So I, um, I studied history at university and then about, I'm trying to think, I think it was straight after, actually. I went and lived in New York for a while um, and while I was living in New York, I guess I discovered American kind of classic, you know, journalism of this kind, um, which I'd really been unaware of until then, and then wondered what to do, and eventually, after a couple of attempts, got into Columbia University Journalism School, and ended up living in the US for a couple of years, and started writing my first features for the New York Times, just little ones for their sort of neighbourhoody section, but I guess I was just doing the thing that most people who end up doing this are doing in their early 20s I suppose which is just you know consuming lots of non-fiction and you know interesting writing of this kind um, and then I moved I got a job as a sort of office researcher and kind of a lackey in the Wall Street office of the Times um, of the London Times, the Times of London you sort of always feel aware saying these things that they don't exist anymore I don't even know if the Times like has a Wall Street correspondent anymore. If they do, they're probably just doing it in their flat or whatever. But then there was a little office with three people in it, and I sort of took care of the bills and sort of researched little sidebars. And it's just an ideal first job in journalism in terms of being introduced to sort of how crap it is. Um, <laughs> and did that, and then got a job in London for the website of the Times, which again, sort of, it'll be different now, but this was the sort of job before live blogging, I guess. This was just bashing out sort of three or four sort of converted wire stories a day, which sounds terrible, but actually it was very... We covered the London bombings in the summer of 2005. We covered Hurricane Katrina, kind of, in terms of, like, a period for when... I think people started to check news websites more than once a day. It was actually kind of formative in... I'm just... You know, I spent sort of three years doing that and didn't... And sort of... I don't know anything about the internet, but kind of who does, but I'm certainly not, like, allergic to... Do you know what I mean? It was, like, a good yeah. thing to have done. And then I got... Was determined to try and do longer and more ambitious pieces of writing, so I left The Times in 2007. And with... 
a list of sort of magazine ideas and and sort of have been sort of going through the list. Sure. And you mentioned with your experience in the States, did you, because you had the Fulbright, the, the um, scholarship in Columbia, the Alistair yeah. Cook one, had you gone out to the US before you'd kind of applied to that? Yeah, anyway? I had, yeah. I was, um, I spent a summer, I was uh, an intern for Ali G uh, in my first summer in New York, uh, <laughs> which was, so I was doing that. It was like at a production company doing British shows in New York. And, um, okay. So that was a lot of fun. But I, while I was out there, I found about the journalism school, blah, blah, blah. So it sort of led from that rather than a particularly sort of well-conceived plan. And what was your experience of formal journalism education? It's always interesting to, to My see experience what experience of formal journalism at Columbia was that at Columbia I was sort of... I'm sure it's changed a lot now. I mean, because it's frightening for me, but, you know, this is like 10, 12 years ago now. Um felt like very traditional kind of 60s, 70s journalism training. And it was very, very good in lots of ways. Didn't learn shorthand, which was really annoying. Are you allowed to swear on the Yeah, you're allowed, you can, you're allowed to swear, uh, yeah. Um, which was uh, extremely annoying. Which is, is, is fascinating, isn't it? Because the Americans regard it as a sort of weird Anglo-Australian oh, affectation. So anyway, didn't learn how to do that. And you're taught by these professors who were, in my case, generally kind of fine but then if you ever sort of caught them talking about like what they'd ever done they'd be like well I you know that guy uncovered a secret war or like that guy like changed the course of the pharmaceutical industry or that woman you know wrote the definitive book about xyz and you know what I mean so you were you were introduced to like an ambitious spirit of journalism even if like the people teaching you like seemed quite ordinary sure so it kind of so I'm grateful to have to have had to have had that. And could you talk a bit more about this this exposure to American long form? I mean, I think of of people in this country who are trying to do that kind of work, almost everyone has has this story of encountering either through a kind of formal institutional way or, or someone just passing them a copy of a magazine, this this kind of work. And I, I mean, I remember buying, I think, Rolling Stone or something in, in New York when I was there and opening it and thinking, you know, this is an entirely different... I have not seen this before. It's like a different thing. What was that that kind of moment? for you. No, there wasn't like a kind of a morning like after I read like Joan Didion's White Album that sort of changed everything. You know, there wasn't like a kind of neat moment like that. I'm like But I, you know, I think I'm probably pretty ordinary in the sense that people who decide to do this I don't know, I'm just sort of guessing, but probably just typical sort of pretentious university undergraduates just reading loads of big novels and fiction and all that stuff. And, and I just think at a kind of... At, at a point, that just starts to slide into interesting and experimental, you know, with a really small E, like non-fiction writing. So... What, if you're reading Zadie Smith at university, you're going to start reading the London Review of Books and you're going to start reading The New Yorker and... You know what I mean? I didn't yeah. know. It wasn't, it wasn't more black and white than that. And in terms of your... You, you mentioned you were doing these, these jobs at the Times and the decision to leave that. Was that part of a kind of preconceived plan that you wanted to get a bit of institutional experience and then branch no. out? or No. Did you just become this, 
disenchanted with it. Um, sorry, what was the preconceived bit? Like getting get, a job getting, at the time? To get some experience. Well, I applied. I'd applied for all sorts of jobs. I've never got a job, really. I was a casual at the times. I applied for a graduate trainee scheme, applied FT, blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, um, so I applied for all of these jobs, um, but didn't get them. So in terms of gaining, ex- you know, I was just trying to kind of earn a living vaguely in the field of journalism. It was kind of helpful that it was so far away from what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was earning money um, in order to be able to do kind of other writing, you know, more ambitious writing on the side. And I think if I'd got a really nifty job as like a features writer, I kind of might have shafted me a bit. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because you'd be, you'd think you, this is going to sound really rude, but you're like, you think you're doing interesting stuff, but you're just doing like 800 words on a pop star or something like that. And you're like, you're living the dream, but actually you look back over the course of the year and you're like, oh, did I write anything good or was anything interesting? I think it's quite interesting sometimes to look back and think about the the jobs that was important you didn't get. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I certainly... Yeah, that you mentioned these newspaper traineeships. I think everyone applies for them. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think was at risk of being a graduate trainee at a couple of places, but yeah, yeah. somehow was perhaps temperamentally unsuited to it. Well, and I think Robert in, Thompson, the editor of the Times, said, "I just don't know what to do with you. I can't. I don't know what's going to happen if I put you on the business desk for two years." I was kind of right. I, yeah. I'm sure I would have been terrible. I mean, yeah, I had I had an experience at the FT where they they asked how I'd feel if I was made construction correspondent. And I was right. so that's I was, like yeah yeah I was not able to give the right answer. I did that. when I was at university wondering what to do. I did like one like a civil service like personality test to like see whether you'd be suitable to do the civil service. It took ages. You had to do like sixty five questions or something, and then at the end it came out with this answer. It was like, well, we're not sure, and you're not sure. But if you want like want to double check the like the four questions that actually matter, are and one of the questions was um, the four questions was something along the lines of. How do you feel about working in a large group of people of widely differing abilities and motivations? It's like really bad, really bad. Uh, how do you feel about taking part of uh, projects of large national importance for which you receive no credit? It's like really bad. Uh, so like four questions that were just like you're not. Anyway, so construction correspondent is probably the FT test question. Yeah. Like look deep into her eyes. Does she want to be the construction correspondent? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, interesting on that, I remember a bit when I when I worked for Reuters, it, it often seemed to me slightly like, you know, Khrushchev's Russia in that everyone had to claim that they were really interested in business and finance journalism and had been since the cot yeah, and yeah, sort yeah. of perhaps weren't weren't quite so much. But but moving back again, when you when you made this decision to go freelance, were you did, did you get a sense this was like a viable thing to do at that time? Were there, and this is no, but I was bored and I come to the conclusion that I was just in an office all day writing four or five articles a day with like just watching Sky News all the time. And I was just like, this is a stressful office job where I'm just being asked to do unrealistic stuff. Like, like if this is what it is, I'll just get another stressful office job but get paid more. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I just didn't, I just wasn't seeing any. You know, it's not bad. You know, it's not bad to have a stressful office job, but like a stressful office job where you're like not on a good, con- you know, you have no job security mm. and you're just not being treated particularly well, not getting paid. Particularly. It's just like the definition of crap. Um, so I, I really did leave thinking I will give this a go for six months, and it, at least I'll have given it a go, and I sort of made. I kind of I saved a bit of money, so I kind of didn't have to make any money for six months. And I was like, if I, and I just had this hunch that I'd be doing something more interesting in six months' time. 
if I left than if I stayed, given that it was very boring. It was kind of, that made it feel like a low-risk thing to do. And what were your, your initial forays into, into freelancing? Who were you writing for and how did you find the whole process? Well, um, I, I mean, I can, you know, I can vividly remember. Uh, so before I left the Times, I had, well, at the Times, I managed to convince them to do a, a story for their magazine, for their Saturday magazine. And I would sort of, tr- I would email the editor of the magazine and she wouldn't reply to my emails. So I would like occasionally like create an excuse to like be around near her office and be like hey I'm the guy did you get the email and she'd be like who who are you (laughs) so but I eventually convinced her to write my article for her magazine but I mean it's all just bullshit this stuff but I agreed that I would it was to follow my shirt back to China I agreed that I would I would pay for it I would like I'd end up neutral you know what I mean they wouldn't pay my expenses I would use the fee from the Mm -hmm. article to pay for the pay for the reporting so I'd done that at the times, um, which was like a good sort of thing to have because you know it's very confusing this thing. Like as I always like say to people, like the barriers to entry are really low. Like if you write a magazine story, you're a magazine writer. Yeah, I mean that's kind of it. But you um, do need to write the first. But one. you do need to write the first one. But in terms of the the to like, it's very much like the fact of it proves that you can do it. Yeah. If you know what I mean. So what was your first, was that your first magazine piece? So that was my first magazine story for the time. And was what, a sort of 3K? Uh, do people say, do people say 3K? <laughs> Some people do. 3,000. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it was like three or 4,000 words. Um, did that and then I pitched a story to Prospect about the um, International Standardization Organization, which is a, you know... Mysterious Swiss people who define what the kilo is and things. Uh, well, that was now they do things like software standards and like environmental health and but also when I was doing there was like a huge row between like open office software and like Microsoft and stuff like that. But it's like an obscure rulemaking body which. Um, theoretically anyone can be a member of but like next week they're having their meeting at the Tokyo Grand Hyatt see you there guys so the only people that get to go are like massive corporations to Mm. like set industrial standards anyway so I wrote that for Prospect and then by happenstance it really was happenstance Newsweek got in touch they like needed some reporting doing in London and at what stage in the Newsweek iterations was this uh, this was just before Tina. the sort of um, whatever the word is like implosion or whatever do you know what I mean this yeah. was like when it was still Newsweek go to Dameron it was like yeah it was sort of you know like something to do with a star or whatever but it was just like um, but I and that was that was really fortuitous. I can't remember, but I got a phone call saying, "Oh, look, will you do a bit of reporting for us?" And then they paid me like ninety pounds a day to try and find someone in Essex um, who was like related to someone in Baghdad who'd been kidnapped. Um, so I ended up doing a bit of stuff for Newsweek, um, and then and yeah, as I say, I had this kind of list of five or six feature ideas. I think I did like two or three of them for Prospect. I might have done like two or three of them for Newsweek, and then. The FT magazine got in touch and 
commissioned me to write a story. And then I started working for the FT. I worked for the FT for about five years. Okay. And you had a, a more formalised relationship with them? Uh, yes. I think it took about a year, 18 okay. months. Yeah. And were you contracted or how did it? Yeah, no, I had a contract to do six stories for them a year. Okay. Um, and then I started working at The Week magazine, I think like two or three, two days, certainly two days a week. Um, and I did that for eight years or something. Okay. So it's kind of always been, until very recently, a kind of mixed, a mixed economy. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Where you're, and, and sort of going back to the Times Online stuff, it was, I've always found it helpful to have like some clarity between, you know, I really like the Week magazine, it's an excellent magazine, and the work that I did for them was extremely useful in terms of informing my reporting and finding out about stuff and being like current on things. It was, you know, like craft, craft work, you know mm. what I mean? Just to sort of um, allow me to do five or six longer features a year. And did you have a sense of where, you know, you wanted to be... Did you sense back then that you wanted to be writing for the places you are writing now? Um, mm, not really. I kind of... I don't know. I can't believe you embark on doing this kind of stuff with a, like a particularly well-made plan for how it's going to go or where you're going to end up or which magazine looks good now is still going to be good in five years' time or who's going to... Do you know what I mean? You could grow up dreaming of writing for Newsweek. Um, so, I, so, no, I didn't have a clear... And, and I think as you get into it, you realise that pace is places pay and places don't pay and they're not always totally obvious what those are. I mean, I kind of, I talk to like a couple of like, occasionally people write to me, ask me these questions, and especially like people sort of in their early 20s trying to do things now. And I kind of, I feel, I don't know, maybe this is like really uh, appalling thing to say, but I feel much more, it's hard to police within yourself, but like much more open to be like, okay, maybe you have to do like, copywriting or like some you know job like sort of Kafka had during the day to enable you to do, do you know what I mean you yeah, can't, yeah. I, I think you've got to be pretty um, and likewise you can make quite like Faustian compromises to work at big fancy sounding publications but actually they're shit jobs and you don't get to write anything interesting yeah you know what I mean? exactly yeah. I mean did, did you feel that to do the kind of work that you wanted to do it was necessary to be freelance uh, I would have taken a job at any stage in the last 12 years, I reckon. Really? Yeah, I think so. I applied for loads. Yeah. It's stressful, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> would you still? Um, would I still? Kinda, I'm really, you know, I'm open to office. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think I feel like it's much more important to try and do like two or three excellent pieces of work a year than loads of average stuff that you get paid averagely for. Yeah. That's the worst. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. got to be excellent. Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling on it is that, as you say, like, freelancing is difficult and hard and insecure, and if you're going to try and do it, it has to be with an aim of doing the sort of stuff you want to be doing. 
and, yeah. and then a mix of other stuff to make it work. And another thing that we always try and do in the podcast is talk as, as honestly as possible about money and, and issues like that. Um, you alluded to this earlier, but did you, how, you know, from that, that time a decade ago when you left the Times, would, it, it was sort of this, you were saying it's like this mix of, of, um, of different, you know, doing your magazine stuff, but then some other things around the edge yeah. to make it work. And was that, um, does that continue now or do you, does the, the mag stuff kind of wash its own face? The magazine stuff pretty much pays for its, yeah, it's, no, I'm, I live off that now. Um, and I think I started, I think I gave up the week about 18 months ago or maybe it was like, yeah, it was March last year or something, so it's maybe two years ago, um, coming up to two years ago. I mean... Money-wise, FT paid me £1,500 for cover stories for their magazine for five years, yeah. which is, you know, peanuts. Yeah. Um, and then the week I was sort of doing shifts of sort of 150 to 200 quid. I think I kind of nudged them up to 200, 250 quid. By the time I left, yeah. So yeah, sort of it's thirty to it's thirty to forty grand. Yeah. For. Yeah. Yeah, and and do you see kind of going forward that you you want to st- just keep doing work on a freelance basis or how do you? No, I have a contract now with the Guardian. Okay. Um, and I'd, my sort of next sort of step is to try and have a book going in the background. That's my next transition, but I'm sort of always late with deadlines so it's hard to manufacture that kind of gap and whenever I do it I seem to end up writing on the magazine story so yeah that's my personal challenge and in terms of when you when you started breaking from these British publications into into the American publications you're writing for places like Harper's and so forth how did you find that that process and the, the differences in in what was expected of you and what what those that kind of work was like was different. I mean, I kind of, I wasn't very, um, I think on the one hand, I kind of had an awareness of it through going to Colombia and like just having been to America is like helpful and like, um, and writing features for the New York Times where the kind of copy editors on the New York Times sort of double as fact checkers and so it's, you know, an involved editing process which isn't it's not the same as magazine editing process but it's from the same culture of editing um, so it didn't take me altogether by surprise um, no I just I just really enjoyed I just really enjoyed doing it I might just let should we give Tess a couple of minutes or yeah. should Tess uh, feature on the podcast for a bit but I think she can feature on she the podcast that's, 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 that's Sam's daughter we're hearing in the background um, and can we talk a bit about, about method? I mean, I remember we had a conversation a few years ago in which we were talking about the best way to handle interview audio, and you, you advocated yourself as a part of the transcribe everything uh, school of that. Yeah. Are there any particular, kind of in, in the time you've been doing this, how have you refined your, you know, for want of a less ugly word, workflow or process yeah. or things like that? It's hard. Um, how have I refined Do you have a particular how pen? How have I refined my workflow? Um, I do have a particular pen. Um, do you write longhand? Uh, no, 
No, no, no. I kind of, I think, I'm trying to think to sort of tackle your question in part, I, I think it's... Maybe another way to phrase would be, if, if you were able to give your, yourself of ten years ago some advice on, on the kind of mechanics of doing this stuff, what would you, what would you say? Um, I'm very inefficient. So, <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> I'm probably like scared to miss out steps um, or to make particular refinements. I think I would, and this is a trite thing to say, but you'd sort of got to slightly kind of give up on the idea of kind of landing it in a single draft mm. which is sort of such an such a sort of yeah but maybe this one's perfect do you know what i mean and it never is you know what i mean you kind of i mean i, I can't felt stand like the hope every time um that you know yeah you'll kind of and and to be more relaxed about that but then you can't be that relaxed about it because you can't hand in something crap like it's got to be the best that you can but you have to think it's perfect or like do you think so because my, my views on this have changed in that i now have decided that it it, it has to be a, a process of dialogue to get it there that it has to be a discussion between you and the editor and that my first draft i, I make very clear like this is just the starting point for the conversation and which which i find quite liberating psychologically to say yeah but yeah. obviously you are exposing yourself because you're putting something well you've also like but then you just my fear about that is that you then waste time being like, well, then, well, they're like, well, this structure clearly doesn't. Well, like, well, I know the structure doesn't. Do you know what I mean? You've like, you spend like half of the conversation talking about the second draft, about problems that you all know, already sort of know exist in the first draft. Yeah. Maybe I'm harder on myself than you are, Simon. Maybe. I mean, I, yeah. I just found it liberating to think like. I think you got it. You got it. You got it. They're always going to make you rewrite it. So, got, that's the thing. Know. That's what I'm talking about. You got to kind of whatever turn off that switch that thinks that this is all going to. You know, which, as you say, liberates you to experiment or whatever. I mean, I think the way I've really tried, because I used to hate being edited, is to try and think, you know, to try and set up the conversation so that you and the editor are on the same side working towards a common goal, you know, and then it's a collaborative relationship. And then almost as, as though you're sort of lifting up the bonnet and saying, you know, I think this might work, but it might not. Um... But I have. I should say actually that I we spoke to David Wolf on the podcast, and he he did mention Sam Knight as turning in the most polished drafts in the oh, business. Yeah, so. so, but I feel like I don't know. I, I feel like in a, I feel like a good editor is is gonna collaborate with you. I can't believe there's a really good adversarial editor out there. If you know what I mean. Anyway, but in terms of. Um, I'm afraid I am a kind of. I am afraid I'm a sort of inefficient guy. I think, you know, I mean, these are such sort of small things, but I think, like, a few years ago, if I was doing a trip to report something, I would, like, almost, like, jam it packed solid before I left, you know what I mean? Mm. Because you're just sort of anxious that anyone's going to see you, and so you just fill up all the time. And I think I'd sort of be more confident about not doing that and letting things develop and trusting your own responses to things. I think you can you can report so hard that you don't even um, allow your own personal response to things, if you see what I mean. 
like you just you just literally make no time to consider your own feelings or something. And in terms of the, the kind of subject matter you, you write about, has there are there particular areas that you sort of cluster around or things conversely that you really are uninterested in doing? I remember once you, you mentioned that you, you didn't like dealing with particular people who are very heavily sort of press-minded or press-officered or things like that. Yeah, I mean, press officers are pretty terrible. Um, generally, I've started doing like more political stuff in the last couple of years and it's very much the same there. But I'm, but I'm very interested in writing about politics. Um, yeah, I haven't done any like major celebs um, and... I don't know what that would be like. That would be a sort of example of, I think you'd have to pick someone that you found really fascinating and, again, like, listened to your own response to the whole process of it rather than sweating on... I once interviewed Andy Murray for, like, 18 minutes. And that was just a fucking waste of time. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, I think you'd, you'd want to be in a in a writing for a publication that you're able to acknowledge the 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 reality of what was going yeah. on. I think that would be a very stressful situation to be in. Can we talk about a couple of or three pieces in particular? The first one is this this Harper's piece on stalking that you did three or four years ago or so. Yeah. Which which I, I found completely fascinating. And just as a sort of brief praise for you, we'll put it in the show notes. But it's a piece really looking at the one particular case of stalking that happened in Cornwall, um, and but also looking much more broadly at, at legislation around it and psychology of it. Um, and was wondering really how you how you came to that and what the what the challenges were of reporting that. Because I was particularly impressed that you were able to to speak to both sides, you know, to to the stalker and the stalky, as it were. Um, I, um, victim is the <laughs> victim is the is the, is the is the term. Um, so yeah, so that story came about because I heard about a um, I heard about a guy, and I heard about kind of. And I think what was kind of central to sort of everything that followed was I heard about this man who was an opera singer uh, and a tree surgeon and a kind of large-hearted um, sort of lost soul figure who was just slightly, you know, lived in the far west of Cornwall and was sort of huge, physically imposing. Um, Where did you hear about him? I heard about him through a friend, um, and I spend a lot of time in Cornwall, and this friend spends a lot of time in Cornwall, and they just sort of come across him singing, singing in a choir, and and I and and he just told me all these stories about this um, this um, this sort of figure out of time called Jude, uh, Jude Legrice, and and I, and I was just, you know, I was like, why well, do you know, tell me more about this guy, you know, tell me more stories, because he was telling stories about how he lived in Italy and had rescued people during the earthquake. Been in a shipwreck. He'd stuff. been in a shipwreck. He'd sort of, he'd sort of lived this, um, was living this sort of, sort of 18th or 19th century existence kind of thing. And I said, tell me, you know, tell me more, to, you know, and, and sort of asked my friend to just tell me anecdotes about this guy. And, and until he sort of said, and I said, well, what's, you know, what's he doing now? And he said, well, you know, he's been, 
uh, he's been locked up in a medium security mental hospital for for stalking and and it was just sort of really important to be introduced to someone who had been you know prosecuted in prison for stalking this is a banal thing to say but like as a person rather than as like a demon as a demon from like single white female do you know what i mean mm. um and to feel an instinctive sense of sympathy or something had gone wrong uh, rather than you know terror so i wrote to his parents um, and went to see them and talked about the story. I mean, it took four years to report that story because really? Jude was, you know, in... He was sectioned and he was going to get out and then he wasn't going to get out and then he was going to get out and then he wasn't going to get out. And it was, so there's all sorts of questions about whether um, it was the right time. And there was a lot of... He was convinced that he'd sort of suffered a terrible miscarriage of justice and that he wasn't mentally ill whereas the truth is he is mentally ill and he had suffered a miscarriage of justice in the sort of I think broadest sense of how stalking and harassment legislation works but not in the, the like particulars of his case so it was never going to be like a free Jude kind of article and that sort of took a long time to sort of get across um, and that was on his side of things and then I was also very kind of adamant that I couldn't do the story unless um, Rebecca, uh, who's the woman who he stalked, and her family took part in the reporting, even in a kind of off the record basis. And were they? Were they? Did that take some persuading? Yes, and yeah. I mean, the whole thing was pretty kind of vexed, but it, but it, no, is this sort of short answer. I mean, I didn't approach them until fairly. Let, until I knew that until I'd certainly done kind of quite a lot of the interviews with Jude and he was it looked like he was going to be released and so it was fairly you know I was right into the reporting um, by that stage but they had initially tried to resolve the difference you know resolve the problem between the two families at an early stage so there was a kind of a sense of his, um, a sense that he had an illness, um, as well as just sort of regarding him as as a kind of unacceptable um, sort of presence in their lives. And how long was that piece? That I don't really know. Uh, ten, ten, twelve thousand words, maybe something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and how, how did you had you had an existing relationship with Harper's before that? Yes, I'd done. A story for them before. Um, yeah, I'd done one story before for this uh, an excellent editor called Chris Cox. Who's now at GQ. He's now at GQ. Um, so, yeah, and he'd known about this story and I told him about it. And yeah. And the, the next one I was interested in talking about was the piece you did relatively recently for The Guardian um, on preparations for the Queen's death. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested maybe if you just talk a bit more generally about how you know, you've been a prolific contributor to the Guardian's long reach shop since it was set up. How did you, how did you kind of end up in, in that world and what's your experience doing, doing this kind of work in, in that kind of shop window being like? Uh, what, is it a good idea to write for the Guardian long read? No, or how is, how is doing, doing kind of long, long form stuff for the Guardian compared to doing it for these sort of more traditional magazine outlets? 
Um, I mean, the the Guardian Long Read is a kind of, I think, in fact, I know it's been you know a really extremely successful kind of venture within the Guardian, um, but it's kind of a sort of slight kind of paramilitary outfit if you know what I mean it's three it's three yeah. people and a couple of designers um, and one of those is Jonathan Shannon who used to work at the New Yorker and one of them is David Wolfe who used to work at Prospect and the other is Claire Longrig who used to be I think deputy editor on the magazine um, so she's the sort of long term Guardian person with the sort of Guardian DNA and Jonathan is a totally a creature of American you know uh, magazine journalism and David comes from from Prospect and arrived at the Guardian at the same time as, as Jonathan did. So they're kind of it's it's much like being edited for, you know For the Americans. For for an American publication, yeah. but under the slightly unrealistic time and budget constraints of a British <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> so it's pretty good. But but so at the same time the stuff is very widely read. Right? Yeah, I think it's no, I and 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 that's one of the you know, one of the really nice things about about writing for the Guardian is is prepared to sort of put its money where its mouth is and fund this kind of reporting, and also the web stuff is brilliant. You know, they're really good at they're really good at sharing stuff and getting it out there, and it always feels very exciting when you have something published there. And this piece um, about the death of the Queen, which made a huge impact online and so forth, or preparations for the Queen's death, yeah. was that your idea, or did they come to you with it? They. That arose at kind of lunch of sort of of of, of David and Jonathan Clare and some sort of regular contributors to the Long Read. I think a few weeks after Trump got elected, and you know we'd had Brexit and everyone was sort of looking around, going, you know, what's going to happen next? And someone I really can't remember who it was. Someone said, "Well, the Queen's going to die," and and we and everyone sort of took a moment to consider this and was like, "Oh, you know, what what actually does happen with?" Uh, when the Queen dies, and there'd been some, there'd been some journalism on the subject, these sort of, these closely held plans, um, but I think, in fact, uh, well, just in, I had read, you know, in the previous sort of year or two, the New Yorker had done two particularly excellent pieces of, if you like, closely reported speculative journalism uh, in the form of Evan Osnos did a really good one about Trump's first term when it seemed improbable or impossible that Trump would become president. Um, and the which, other one was about the, the earthquake. And the other one was about the the, um, the, other, the the Catherine Schultz article. Yeah, yeah, the Catherine Schultz article. So so and I so I, I was interested in that as a as a genre um, of trying to bring that method to to bear on you know what I think I say in the article is the sort of next big sort of earthquake in British life. And what was the process of reporting that like? I mean you mentioned there's a line in it talking about you know most people or insisted on talking about background yeah. and so forth. Um, well I kind of you know there's there you know, I'm using it because it doesn't happen to be right. there are things that I can't say <laughs> uh, in terms of people's contribution to that article, um, but the way that I reported that story, which is kind of the way that I report every story, uh, which is a kind of secret um, 
asset of people trying to do this kind of journalism is like going to the library. Uh, it's like it's kind of all in the library. Just everyone else is too rushed and ripping shit off the internet. It's like so. Whatever story I'm doing, I'm doing. I'm about to go and spend a few days in the library now. You know, my next story. Uh, you go to the library. Uh, I was talking about dressage. You go to the library. You want to talk about snooker a minute? Go to the library. Like read books about snooker, because some other person's done a lot of work on this already. Mm. So in terms of the Queen, um, I and it's so weird. It kind of goes to the sort of barrier to entry thing. If you like read up on something, like actually read up on it, you're able to have much more interesting conversations with people because. You're, ha- you're obviously kind of bluffing it to you know a large extent because that's what journalists do but at least you've like put in a bit of sincere effort to try and understand their work and what they do so you know with the Queen what's going to happen at the Queen's you know in the days after the Queen's death it's obviously going to like follow very closely royal precedents so you know you go to the library you read royal biographies you find out what happened when monarchs die and you find out that you know I'll get, I'll get the name of the king or the queen or but the, you know, George V, I think, you know, his coffin was escorted from Sandringham to the local train station by, you know, Jock, his white shooting pony, you know, and, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, you know, and then you see, oh, other kings and queens have, like, animals in their processions, and suddenly you've got a little question to ask some poor, anonymous courtier, you know. One thing and, I, I noticed yeah. in that in that story, but also actually in the Harper's one, is this, this way you have of integrating the kind of top level narrative with with the broader the broader background or the broader you know stuff perhaps be it on ceremonial or be it on the psychology of stalking. How is that something you do that in a very finessed way? Do you have a kind of conscious approach to to, to bringing those strands together? Um I don't think so. I think that um, I think a kind of interesting thing to like have in your mind when you're doing that kind of thing is about like pleasure um, and like this should be pleasurable to um, read this stuff I think there's a kind of you can just see it very often in most forms of journalism are kind of <gasps> sort of drawing of the breath for, you know, the history bit or the technical bit or the science bit or the bit. But that's, you know, that's the story, you know what I mean? So it should be as pleasurable and as fun as, as everything else. So if it's kind of, if it's not kind of popping, if it's not fun, then it's not working. And you can often, like, maybe, like, delete half of that and just see what it looks like. Mm. You often need a lot less than you than you think. And what was the response to that piece like? I mean, it did very well on social, but what what kind of at the epicenter? How did it feel like? Um, well, a lot of people got in touch to say that three, four prime ministers have served office since the Queen. Some you know, a lot you know mistakes. People were pretty hot on mistakes in that story. Um, the response was, it was, you know, what do you say? You know, it was, it was, it was, it was strong. The palace knew it was coming, and had, I think this is okay to say, extremely craftily, uh, 
briefed royal correspondents uh, sort of under embargo about everything to do with the Queen's death a few days earlier. So it made the Guardian look like we'd leaked. We'd been to that briefing and leaked it, okay. which was a very kind of deft bit of sort of media management. Um, but they're fucking pros, these guys. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, people, people, people read it and, you know, and our, our kind of the starting intention, you know, was present in that conversation in the pub, which was a sense of the world is shaking, all these kind of unprecedented things are happening the death of the Queen will strip off our comfort blanket and kind of force Britain to examine its its sort of shrinking status in the world was definitely the big thought behind the story rather than anything trying to do anything particularly garish about, aha, she will be embalmed or something grisly. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It wasn't... It wasn't... Um, it was done from a sense of a national sort of psychological examination rather than um, outlook we found out, a bit of palace goss, you know. Um, and I was very proud and um, that within The Guardian we um, took like quite a strong line to, it would simply be, you know, an 8,200 word essay. It wouldn't appear in any other... They wouldn't break it out into, like, a news thing or, like, mm. a little 23 things you need to know about the death of the Queen. Like, we weren't going to... Um, we weren't going to present the information in any other context than than all of those things that I spoke about. Yeah. Which, um, which I was really, you know, which was also a really nice kind of vindication for this kind of journalism and that lots of people slogged their way to the end. And what's your view more broadly on on social media? I mean, do you do you use it? I mean, you talk about it, we were talking about how this piece bounced around online, but how involved are you in that that kind of world of journalist Twitter and things like that? Um, I kind of I'm definitely in it. You know, I have a Twitter account. Um, I look at things. I don't know. It's the sort of it's the kind of imperfect um, sort of imprint for how things going or information spreading, which is only partially accurate, but it's sort of the best thing we've got. You know what I mean? So I kind of I don't know. I think um, I didn't go on. I sort of gave up Twitter for the summer, and it felt pretty good. Um, but then you know you do. You want to share things that you like. You want to push your stuff so people see it. I don't know. It's it, I find it a fairly complicated force um, in my own life. Um, on my desktop, I have it blocked. I have like I got one of those bits of you know. It's just you just can't go on it. And the final piece I was interested in talking about is the the New Yorker profile of Ronnie O'Sullivan that you did. Um, I mean, for obviously for people doing this kind of work, the New York is often perceived as a kind of um, sine qua non or the top level. What was it like kind of getting there, you know, both in terms of the, the process and then what it felt like psychologically when you'd, you'd sort of broken into that world? Um, what was the process like getting there? Um, I kind of... I mean, I kind of... When I was at Columbia, David Remnick came and spoke to the class 
and it was like really early in the morning, it was like eight o'clock in the morning, and of course like all 220 people uh, attended this like ridiculously early start. Um, and I vividly remember him saying at the end of this session, do not pitch me. Uh, he said it more nicely than that, but he said, do not pitch me. He said, we will find you um, if you're good, which was, which was sort of, you know, he just obviously didn't want to get like 220 emails that day mm. from Columbia people. But it was, it was kind of good in that it was sort of, um, it sort of, it functions as good advice, which is that the only thing that you can do is to try and write really good stories. And that's the hard part. And just do that. And in a funny way, that's where kind of Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff and all this social media sharing makes all this stuff. You know, in what galaxy would you write a feature for a British newspaper that would get picked up and selected by long form and then mm. shared literally to every inbox of every American magazine editor? Like, who, who could design such an instrument? Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that, like, exists now. So I kind of, I do think there's a real truth in, like, if you do good work, it will find good editors because there's not a lot of it around kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that was a very garbled explanation to a question that the New Yorker wrote to me. Um, kind of... It was sort of somewhat after the Jude article came out in Harper's. Mm. I'd also written some stuff for... A, excellent now defunct American website called Grantland about sport mm. I'd written um, about the Belgian football team and about the Grand National for them and so an editor at the New Yorker had read my stuff and they had had the idea of doing a Ronnie O'Sullivan profile for a couple of years and asked me to take it on because getting access to Ronnie was very difficult because he kept firing his managers. <laughs> and in terms of your your future plans, where you see yourself going now, is your work mostly concentrated between The Guardian and The New Yorker now, or are you doing other stuff Yeah, well? it's pretty, kind of pretty much it. It's kind of half-half. I have a contract with The Guardian to do a certain number of stories with them a year, which I'm always late on, so I'm embarrassed talking about. And then I do a couple of stories for The New Yorker... Um, yeah, I'm doing about five or six stories a year. Okay. Um, and it's like one one or two too many. Um, yeah, and I do about half-half. And where do your... You, you still want to... You're interested in doing a book as well. Yeah. Do you have a particular idea in hand for yeah, that? Yeah, no, or? I've got an idea that I'm trying to do as an, as an article for The New Yorker, but it keeps getting delayed by other stuff. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and... It, it, it's interesting. Do you do you see sort of the pairing of the, the book writing and the the magazine journalism is the way you want to go with this? I mean, I've I've certainly found that. I mean, you know, I found it was essential to do financially, but also actually it was useful to be doing, you know, to be publishing in places that book publishers respect, but also to be doing a book and thing. It was kind of mutually synergistic. I th- I'm really that's what I've sort of wanted to do for a little while now, and I kind of and it sounds exciting, and I'd like to, I'd like to give it a go, and I'd like to write. Um, in you know I'm also doing more kind of web stuff for the New Yorker which I'm really enjoying doing as well I don't know there's just something the whatever it is the sort of four to five to seven to whatever ten thousand word magazine story it's kind of a particular you know what I mean it's like a short story or something it's a particular 
you know, craft within non-fiction writing and I can't, it can't hurt to be doing shorter and longer mm. as well. Do you know what I mean? You, other, you know, otherwise you sort of might start to see everything as... In terms so of, in terms of how many, if you're doing four to six pieces a year, how yeah. many do you have on your plate at any one time? Um, so I have two at the moment. Two's okay. Yeah. Four's impossible. I've tried four before. Can't do four. You uh, don't feel that it can work to have them at very different stages in the process. One at kind of initial reporting, one at uh, one you may be travelling, one that you're, you're, you're writing up and another you're, you're taking through the edit. I often find that can work. How many was that? You just did four. I can't yeah. do that. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think we've kind of covered, yeah, covered most of this. I suppose the final thing I was going to say is, do you have literary ambitions in any kind of wildly divergent areas? Are you interested in writing a novel, or you know, there are some magazine writers who are interested in moving to script writing, and particularly with with long form TV and stuff like that. Does that stuff float your boat? Um, it's kind of. Um... It's not something that I kind of actively think about. Uh, I think the um, the Ronnie articles, a genesis for a movie that may get made. So I'm kind of interested to see how that pans out. I'm kind of like interested, but you sort of feel like oh, you know, taking on like a whole new uh, discipline feels. Um, I don't know. Books is kind of is 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 the next one that I'd like to do, as opposed to really going in all sorts of different directions. Sure. Well, look, Sam. Thanks for um, being so generous with your time and and speaking so openly. And um, much appreciated. We really hope you enjoyed that. Now, a brief update from our lives. Simon, what have you been up to? Um, I've just emerged from a multi-hour meeting with my book editor, but actually, I feel pretty uh, invigorated by it. Not bruised. Uh, no, stretched. Stretched, I think, is key. Uh, so, <laughs> so doing that, and um, more excitingly, well, no, equally excitingly, I've just come back from the Congo, uh, where I was reporting a piece uh, for Harper's Magazine. Uh, Cassia, what about you? I got to see some of the, the video footage that Simon shot from that piece. It's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. I have been um, mostly um, buried in books and research. Uh, uh, in the final uh, couple of weeks before my book deadline, so my life is is mostly composed of, of coffee and, and and sadness and, <laughs> and notes and 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 all things end of book. Uh, but I'm pretty excited, and we're, uh, yeah. we're, we're mutually full of festive greetings. Yeah, <laughs> mince pies all round. Uh, anyway, yeah, that, that's it from us. This has been always take notes, hosted as ever by me, Cassie Sinclair, and me, Simon Acom. Our producers are Olivia. Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Social media is done by Zara Hankier. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. And you can find us on all manner of social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And as ever, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. Thank you very much. Bye.